If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to the last book in the Bible, the next to last chapter, chapter 21. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, we ask that You would speak to Your people as we come to You. And Father, we do indeed come to receive the food of your holy word. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come to the end. The end, that is, of this series. The end of church government. The end of how Jesus Christ runs his church. What church government is and why it matters. And as I said in our preparing for worship email, some of you may be quietly saying, yes, we've come to the end. But let me ask you this question. Um, what What are you looking forward to most? Children, are you looking forward to spring to start? Vacation to start? Or rather, are you looking something to end? You know, like school to end. And now, I think most of us would look forward to suffering, ending. But let's not... Think about to end, like suffering to end, this difficulty to end, this cold winter weather to end. But let's think about the end, the end, yes, not as in it's over, but it's the goal, the end to which biblically sound and spiritually healthy church government should be headed and where it should ultimately arrive. This end should serve as the fundamental orientation of church government. I love the expression, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Children, if you aim at nothing, what happens? You'll hit it every time. But as we've been seeing, there is an aim, there is a goal, there is an end, there is a purpose for church government, and I believe our text will help us to see what that is. Because as we've been saying, this topic, this subject of church government is not irrelevant. It's not optional. It's important. It's central. It matters. It matters. Why? Because what a church does, its ministry cannot be separated from how a church is led, its government. We've been saying that representative church government or Presbyterian church government is not only biblically consistent, but it's extremely practical in providing not only for the leadership of the church, but for a, a orienting framework to which the church can be um, um, set up in its ministry. And as we've also been saying, it's, it's helpful because it provides checks and balances. It serves to protect the church from anarchy on the one hand and tyranny on the other. Good, healthy, biblically directed and balanced government 
is a blessing in the lives of God's people. You see, Jesus Christ rules and governs his church for his own glory and for the present and everlasting good of his people. Well, let's do a real quick review of the last eight weeks. We started off with who's the boss. And we've learned that Jesus Christ makes the rules. He calls the shots. He's the king. And as king of his church, Jesus expresses his his, um, kingly authority as both a shepherd or an elder and as a servant or as a deacon. Jesus possesses in himself both a ministry of rule and a ministry of service. Jesus, our shepherd. And from there, we looked at the person and work of the elder, the man who knows the sheep, feeds the sheep, leads the sheep, and protects the sheep. We saw that Jesus is our servant, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And from there, we saw the person and work of the deacon who leads the church in the ministry of mercy. We took a look at how to recognize elders and deacons, men who are above reproach, who care deeply about and are devoted to the church, and men who are humble. Their lives are shaped by the gospel. They lead the church in repentance and faith. They represent Jesus Christ in the fullness of his ministry as a shepherd and as a servant, both in his ministry of rule and in his ministry of service. And then last week we saw the relationship between church government and the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission is a call not to individual Christians as such as it is a call to the church. It's a command to the church to make disciples how? Baptizing and teaching, which takes place in and through the church. Join with me now as I read the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Now this is the vision that John is given, that John sees. It's the end to which the church and indeed the world is headed. So it's also the end to which biblically sound and spiritually healthy church government is given by God to promote. The end, as I think we will see in our text, is the people of God living in the presence of God and enjoying the peace of God. Well, let's unpack these eight verses and take a look at each of these three components in some detail as we explore the end for which God designed the government of his church to promote. First, let's look at the people of God. The summary of the vision is right there in the first part of verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation is a, is a daunting book. Some people don't want to touch it because they're afraid. But here's the message of Revelation. And the women, when you studied that book a, a few months ago, I believe you heard this, God wins. You want to know what the message of Revelation is? God wins. And its purpose, therefore, is to strengthen the church, to strengthen the faith of believers who are undergoing difficulty and trial in a hostile word. God wins. And it's that assurance that strengthens the faith of God's people. And this chapter comes following the destruction of the last enemy. And following that destruction is the renewal of the entire created order. Notice the beginning of verse 5. All things new. It's a transformation of the old world. It's redemption. It's a radical renewal. Earlier we heard Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 24 read. This is the original sound of which Revelation 21 is an echo. But it's a thundering triumphant echo. Old and New Testaments, one message for one people. Now, who inhabits this new heaven and the new earth? Look, verse 3. His people. They will be His people. The covenant promise is highlighted here. I will be your God and you will be, you will be my people. We hear it in Genesis 17. We hear it in Leviticus 26. We hear it throughout the message of the prophets. God's people are described as the thirsty. We read in verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You see, God's people are people who know their need. And they know that they can't pay it. It's without payment. It's without price. God provides it. But also in verse 7, we hear of God's people as being the one who conquers, who overcomes this idea that life is a battle. It's a war. God's people are thirsty and are satisfied. And God's people are the ones who overcome. God's people balance this possessing nothing in themselves, but everything in Christ. But notice how this section ends. This section ends with a warning, a second death. It's the end to which unrepentant people can indeed look forward to. 
And interestingly, as I was working on this, I kept thinking about this gift that God's people are given of life. And yet, Paul would write in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Isn't that interesting? Here you've got a gift, and here you've got wages. Who inhabits the new heavens and the new earth? God's people. Well, what does church government have to do with it, you might be asking. In other words, how does any of this relate to this subject of church government? Well, back in July 1988, uh, President Ronald Reagan spoke before um, the future farmers of America. And in his speech, he said this, quote, The ten most dangerous words in the English language are, quote, Hi, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Yes, I heard a laugh or two. However, in the church and coming from the officers of the church, the government representatives of the church, my friends, these are not dangerous words. These are wonderful words. Church government, the elders and the deacons, and indeed everybody in the church is in a place to care for the people of God. And in particular, the officers do by leading them and serving them. Shepherds and servants care for God's people. So Revelation 21, 1-8 speaks of God's people dwelling with God or God dwelling with His people. Living in the very presence of God. Look with me back at verse 3. God with man. A huge biblical theme. It's the goal of God's covenant. God coming to man and not man going to God. Emmanuel, God with us from Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. And indeed, in church government and the Great Commission, what did we hear? And surely I am with you always. With you always. Foreshadowed in the Old Testament, tabernacle and temple, but made known, as we read in John 1, speaking of Jesus, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt among His people. So you've got God's people living in God's presence. Well, this idea of the presence of God, this reality of the presence of God is a double-edged sword. For the believer, absolutely wonderful, greatest blessing imaginable, unhindered fellowship with God. Anybody agree? With God in his presence, unhindered by sin. The old is gone, the new has come. For the believer, it's absolutely wonderful. But my friends, the presence of God for the unbeliever is absolutely terrifying, isn't it? Because you see, hell will not be a place that's somehow absent from God's presence. God will be very present there in His wrath. So let's ask ourselves this question. Um, think about the best relationship you have with another human being. Do you love to be in their presence? I would think so. Well, think about, sadly, right now, if there is a bad relationship that you've got because we've all got them 
and hopefully they're in various stages and states of repair. But imagine a particular human relationship that you do not, that's not going well. Do you want to be in that person's presence? No. The presence of God is a double-edged sword. For the believer, blessing. For the unbeliever, curse. So what's church government got to do with it? In other words, how does this relate to church government? Remember, church government is really here to help. It's God's design to help the church mature. Because church government represents the fullness of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus in how we are led and in how we are served. Elders and deacons, as we've been saying, are not self-made men, but they are God-made men whose lives are shaped by the gospel. The church follows them as they follow Jesus. And where do they follow? Follow into the very presence of God. God's people are living in God's presence doing what? What are they doing? Enjoying God's peace forever. Enjoying the everlasting peace of God. What is the end? What is the end? In a word, it's peace. It reminds me of the name of this church, Grace and Peace, Cause and Effect. In one sense, the Alpha and the Omega, because the beginning is all of grace and the end is all of peace. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Remember, who's the boss? As the government increases, peace increases. And in Colossians 1, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And what's he doing? Reconciling all things, making what? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace with God on the vertical and peace with others on the horizontal. My friends, there can be no peace between people unless there is peace with people. And there will be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. Peace. It's a blessing. It's the reversal of the curse. It's the end of sin and suffering and death. The tears are wiped away. Death is destroyed. Mourning, crying, and pain are all done away with. Is anybody looking forward to that? Jesus reverses the curse. He reverses the effects of the fall. It's the storyline of the Bible of perfect creation. Fall into sin. But beginning with redemption and ending in glory. So what's church government got to do with it? How does this at all relate to church government? Remember, church government is here to help. It's designed by God to promote peace. Peace that people have with God and peace, consequently, that people have with one another. And so elders and deacons promote peace Primarily by doing one thing. Pointing people to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Well, what does heaven look like? 
There are a lot of popular books out there, pretty much junk books, of some little kid that dies and gets a glimpse of heaven and then sells a lot of money or sells a lot of books and his parents make a lot of money. What does heaven look like? What does eternal life look like? Well, there are few details, but what we can say for sure is heaven is God's people living in God's presence and enjoying God's everlasting peace. Now, this really does sound like it's too good to be true. And, and what's the rule out there? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But you know what? There's a fourth and final P. The promise of God. Look at the end of verse 5. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. God knows that it may be too hard to believe. And so we are to look at all of the promises from the mouth of God. You know, we sang a moment ago, every promise. I will stand on every promise. This afternoon, as families and individuals, open up your Bibles, go through Revelation 21, the first eight verses, and see if you can count all the promises that God makes to His people. My friends, why do we need promises? We need promises because life is lived right now in the middle. It's in the middle of the already of Jesus' first coming and the not yet of his second coming. What do we have presently? God's people in God's presence enjoying God's peace in part. And what do we not yet have? What awaits us in the future? God's people in God's presence enjoying God's peace in its fullness. Are you looking forward to the end of anything right now? Are you looking forward to something to be over? Or rather, are you looking forward to the goal, to the purpose to which we were created? My friends, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, you can say it, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What is our chief end? What is our ultimate end? What is our supreme end? What is our goal? What is our ultimate purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy Him. And my friends, we can do this here and now, but one day, that's our life. I hope by now that you see that church government is not the problem. Rather, it's more along the lines of the solution. Paul writes this in Colossians 1. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what elders and deacons do. They work alongside people to help people mature in Christ. Christ. Church government prepares the bride of Christ for her wedding day. To present the church radiant. Church government is given by God to keep the means of grace in front of us day after day after day so that 
until that day ahead when we will no longer have to walk by faith, but instead we can live forever by sight. Brothers and sisters, in how they shepherd and serve, elders and deacons whet our appetites for that final day. So what are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward to something to be over? Are you looking forward to something to start? I trust that you're looking forward to being with God's people, in God's presence, enjoying God's peace. Now in part, but one day in full. Brothers and sisters, get a glimpse of that life and experience that life now in the church. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the wonderful creator who made all things for your glory and for your purposes. Father, would you enable us individually and us as a church to align our lives and our ministry for the ends for which you created us? to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And Father, we are now between the already and not yet, and we're still battling the presence of the, the, the power of sin. Oh, Father, would you be merciful? Enable us to put sin to death, to pursue holiness and righteousness as we strain ahead, as we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have a Savior that's gone ahead of us, who has prepared a place for his people. Lord, enable us to more and more long for that day, but in the meantime, live here and now with the blessed assurance that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Indeed, we as the church of God.